<laughs> that was terrible. Alright, all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 178 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, as you can tell, uh, this is the Matt is Sick episode of the SLS Cast. But not only that, it is also the Greek minuscule manuscript episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that back in the 12th century, there was a Greek minuscule manuscript of the New Testament on parchment put together. And they call that minuscule one. Seven eight. With that little bit of historical, biblical-esque knowledge, I, of course, am the ever-present sick-ass fuck, Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee... Tim, the not-so-sick-ass fuck, <laughs> over here on the West Coast, West Coast LA. So, calling yourself sick-ass fuck, Matt, doesn't sound as... Regal as Matt the Mobile Sot, as which you bestowed upon yourself a few months back. True, true. And I guess it's probably because I, it is the return of the plant Bukaki that is causing me to be sick. Dun, dun, dun! It and has so that, that might be uh, what's going on here. So I'm not going to be all with it tonight. But as this is finals week, I don't have a way to reschedule our recording time. It's Monday the 20... Uh, I'm sorry. Monday the 2nd of May. But are we ever with it? I think we're with it more often. Uh, better than this. More often than not. So. Of course it's going to be this show and people are like, God, that was the best episode of the SLS cast I've heard ever. <laughs> uh, I certainly hope not. But if it is, I'll just make sure to ruffle up the voice and make myself sound like crap every week yeah and then we'll just do it that way so, so you say finals are this week are you ready for finals are you i hope so i had uh my american survey of american lit to 1865 final today and that was a four page essay that i submitted online and then tomorrow i have my middle east final Middle East since seventeen um yeah since seventeen hundred final, where I will be discussing in three pages uh the six days war, and then on Wednesday, oh my God, this is terrible from eight thirty p m to ten thirty p m because it's a night class, and the professor was kind of a dick about rescheduling it. I have my early America to seventeen eighty three final, which is again an an in class essay. And then finally on Thursday, because this professor does reschedule things from 6 to 8, I have my last final there, which is an objective essay and an in-class essay. How about your final for your mummified quadriplegic Egyptian class from 1622 to 1819? No, I don't have that one. Oh. So whenever I, uh, whenever I was doing my history courses, I, I minored in history, for those of you who do not know, we would have six or seven different prompts that we would have to study 
And by whenever we have to go in to take the final, only two of those prompts would be chosen for us to actually write essays on. And we would have to write six-page essays per prompt. Is that the same deal, or do you know going in what you exactly have to write about? Uh, Let's see here. So for the one that I did today, it was a complete take-home, and he basically said he wanted to know which aspects of the class and which readings that we had done impacted us the most. Oh, that's a cop-out. That's a, that's a very dead poet society prompt right there. Yeah. So, which is fine. Uh, I actually was able to talk about something, which is kind of nice because I was actually able to talk about stuff that, you know, I felt mattered to me. So that that's good. Um, tomorrow, uh, to the one for tomorrow for the Middle Eastern one, yes, uh, what, she, what she generally does is about a week Usually the weekend before the finals are due, she uh, or the essays are due because you submit these online as well. She has a study guide which presents three questions between one and three questions, and you will pick one of those questions and then write the paper on it. It's just in this particular example, she actually told me what one of the questions was going to be about the Six Days War, and she's like, since you were the only person who actually turned in, it was over a documentary, and I was the only person who actually watched it. Uh, because she assigned it online. She said, so since you're the only person in the whole class who actually watched it and turned in notes, just use that for your essay. So all I got to do is just convert my notes into an oh, essay. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. So is the six-day war like a legitimate six-day war, or was it like four and a half, or no, no, they rounded up? Days. It was straight up six days. Like on the dot. Like it was 24, 24, 24, 24, 24, 24. I guess the last... The last day of the war ended, like, I want to say somewhere in the neighborhood of, like, 8 or 9 o'clock at night, uh, ostensibly, yeah. Well, you know, I guess if you had to end a war on the last day, 8 or 9 o'clock is a safe zone, because it's usually not until about 11.30 p.m. on a weeknight when you realize, God, it's a little late when I have to go to work the next morning. But I guess since, you know, the Six Days War, I mean, you really don't have anything to do the next day, maybe... Scrape up your buddy. The people who lost had a lot to do <laughs> after the Six Days War was over. Mainly explain themselves and then lick their wounds for the next pretty much 40 years. Yeah. Anywho. <laughs> so no I know. I, um, and again, guys, Egyptian I mummified I'm, pygmy I, I courses? Admit, I'm mm-hmm. not 100% here. So Tim is definitely going to be uh, flexing his, uh, his, his talkative muscles here. And covering for my sorry sick ass, that is going to be the case. Tim is going to have to make up for my for my sickness, so we will lean heavily on his awesomeness. <laughs> Yay! Everybody, I can hear all the the voices, the cumulative voices going. Oh, great! <laughs> this this will be good. <laughs> I'm sure it won't be as bad as all that. It might be close, but it won't be as bad as all that. At any rate, though, wait, shall we go check the email box? Let's hop along. <laughs> yes, as we go and check the email box, you too can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, we don't have any emails this week, but we do have a new Twitter follower. And that, uh, of course, you can follow us at the SLScast on Twitter. Uh, it looks like we have Before and Laughter, uh, which is at Before and Laughter, which is a podcast about two brothers who just pretty much like to ramble about everything so it sounds like it would fit in very well 
with our Pottern family, as we like to call it. So thanks for the follow there, guys. Oh, I thought that was about to take a, a Mori route right there. Like you were about to admit something to me. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But um, outside of that, I think we're ready for the news. News it up. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. <laughs> First up from me, uh, from ScreenCrush.com by way of Mike Sampson. Why the Ghostbusters trailer is the most disliked movie trailer in YouTube history. The first trailer for Paul Feig's uh, female-led Ghostbusters remake arrived in March of this year, and the reaction was almost immediately disappointing. Even among those, like us, who are excited for the Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Wiig film, it was a poorly put-together trailer that did little to inspire confidence in the finished product. And then there are those who have been angrily and at times violently against the Ghostbusters movie since the original announcement that it would star four women, and they really did not like the new trailer. Perhaps an indicator of exactly how virulent the anger towards the new Ghostbusters film is, the trailer has been disliked so many times, it's already the most disliked trailer in YouTube history. Uh, it says here that the Ghostbusters trailer currently has 507,610 like dislikes on YouTube. To put that into to put that in perspective, the Fantastic Four trailer from last year has only 20,175 dislikes. The Ridiculous Six trailer, which has an impressive 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, has only 508 5,803 dislikes. Um, and so it kind of goes on from there. And basically here, this person that spends the basically the rest of the article showing um, how certain things from movies, because they've hit the public consciousness a little too hard, like Let It Go, um, from Frozen, has a lot of dislikes and stuff like that. Justin Bieber's Baby uh, has a lot of dislikes. But the big reason here is that everybody is hating on Ghostbusters, uh, according to... Uh, Mike Sampson here at Screen Crush. Basically, everybody who hates this movie is a misogynist asshole. Now, uh, and that's that's the gist. You're welcome to read the entire thing to point it all out. Um, I think that he does actually lend credence to the fact that there might be a few people who legitimately dislike it. But generally, uh, it's all the internet anonymous assholes who just say terrible, terrible things. And, well, that's definitely true because they're out there. This movie has been hated on because, first of all, nobody wanted a remake. Um, secondly, if there was going to be anything, they wanted a sequel with the original cast. Um, thirdly, this movie just looks absolutely terrible. So while there might be a little bit of credence on the opposite end to say that, sure, there are misogynist assholes out there, there there's always going to be hateful people in the world. Uh, it's good to know that on the whole, though, we're moving towards... A better place in that regard, albeit slowly. Um, but to be so dismissive of people who legitimately do not like that, it's just like, I don't know. It seems like Mike Sampson is kind of, I don't know whose ass he's crawling up, but it definitely seems like he's brown nosing somebody's ass that's in regards to the Ghostbusters film. And I disagree. Uh, with that whole entire take on it. What do you think there, Tim? Do you think that the Ghostbusters hate um, is just misogynist assholes on the internet? 
I think it was misogynist assholes until the trailer came out. I I, I have no problem with it being uh, three ladies. I had no problem with... Oh, fuck. It's Paul. Paul Feig. Feige. Feige. Paul Creamfrige directing the movie. It's obviously a comedy, and he does comedies, and he's had, uh, you know, multiple incredibly successful, very successful comedies within the past four or five years. So, of course, you know, he seems like a good fit. But the trailer that was put together to promote this movie was god-awful. And it's difficult not to criticize the trailer because of what you're seeing. I mean, you can check off all the stereotypes the trailer itself serves as how not to cut a trailer. You have all this crappy com, and it, what's also sad is that normally what you do with the trailer is that you don't want to spoil all of the good stuff, which is fine. But you kind of want to put a good joke in the trailer to really help sell the movie and get it the point across what kind of comedy you'll find in here. Well, in that trailer, at least the second trailer that they posted when I uh, this past. Uh, weekend at the movie theater, I saw a second trailer, or I guess it would be a third trailer now, where they cut out the whole let the power of Patty compel you or let the whatever of Patty compel you, you know, smacking the possessed Melissa McCarthy in the face. Well, all that shit happened back in the 90s. Whenever somebody falls down and save the classic overused line, oh, that's going to leave a mark or oh, that's going to hurt in the morning. That has all been done in the 90s to death. Same thing with the whole playing the race card that Leslie Jones' character pulls in the trailer. That's all already been done as well. So, when it comes down to it, there is obvious problems with the trailer. Right now, the number of thumbs down that the trailer has is now 642,390 opposed to... Almost 220,000. Wow. So that's another 100,000 likes in three days. Exactly. That article that I read came out three days ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 642,000 uh, dislikes, which, of course, that could have been fueled by these articles or that article, you know, people just going to do it to be douchebags. And yes, of course, there are misogynist assholes that don't like change and hold movies, especially older movies that they grow up with, they put that on a pedestal and they don't want anybody to mess with it. It's it's fine to a point, but again, this trailer, there's so much more to it than just that. It's just a really bad trailer. I kind of well, very good. beat that horse too much. No, totally, I totally understand. No, and it's good, and it's good that more and more people are starting to see that. So that's awesome. All right, what do you got for us, sir? All right, first up here, something I'm very excited for. For those of you who are keeping Hulu just because they have Criterion movies to stream on there, Hulu Plus, that is, well, guess what, guys? Criterion and Turner Classic Movies are teaming together and bringing us Filmstruck, a brand new streaming service from Criterion.com. Introducing Filmstruck is the title of this article, written by Peter Becker. It says that night after night for more than 20 years, the programming team at Turner Classic Movies has been exploring the world of film in a smart, adventurous way. They have stuck to their mission, consistently shining a light on the classics, delighting us with their themes, surprising us with their discoveries, 
in earning our trust. So when they asked us, Criterion, to team up with them to launch Filmstruck, a new subscription streaming service designed for people who love independent art house, and international cinema, we were honored and thrilled. Combining Turner's programming experience with Criterion's library of films and supplemental content made all the sense in the world. Filmstruck will be launching this fall on desktop and mobile devices and internet-connected television platforms. A service built from the start with nothing but movies in mind, it will feature films from many major studios and independent distributors alongside a broad and constantly rotating selection of Criterion films, complete with the commentaries and rich supplemental content that Criterion viewers have come to expect. Carefully curated and always changing, it should be a cinema lover's dream. And the article does go on from there a little bit. Uh, It does say that Filmstruck subscribers will also be eligible to sign up for the Criterion Channel, a premium service that will be all Criterion's, uh, or excuse me, that will be all Criterion's own. Once we're up and running, the Criterion Channel will not only offer continual access to our library of more than 1,100 films along with their special features, it will also give us the chance to approach the Criterion mission in a whole new way. And all quotes there. Matt, what do you think? I, I Personally, I think this is amazing. We've talked about this during the pre-show. I bought Hulu Plus, or I didn't buy it, but I bought into Hulu Plus because of their selection of Criterion movies. Because of this, I'm going to get rid of my Hulu Plus subscription, subscribe to this, because I love the idea of being able to have access to the special features, the interviews, the commentaries, because there are loads of Criterion movies out there that I would love to own but can't afford, but I just don't have any room in my collection for them. So this will give me the opportunity to enjoy all of those titles in full. Is this something that you'd be interested in? Oh, absolutely, yes. Um, I well, that that there, as much as it's awesome to be a cord cutter and be a part of that pioneering movement and be able to access everything you want online and having Netflix and Amazon Prime and all that kind of stuff, there are some downsides to not having cable. And for me, one of them is TCM. I am a huge fan of classic film, and I always enjoy watching what little I have in my DVD and Blu-ray collection. And if I can catch something online, then great. But to literally have a one-stop shop of TCM and Criterion stuff, um, yeah. Get me that dotted line, sir. I wish to sign up. And just a little tidbit of extraness here, uh, if that makes sense. During our Halloween month, we reviewed three Criterion movies during the how ha- actually the week of Halloween. I Married a Witch, Vampire, and a Carnival of Souls. If we were to watch those next Halloween, we would be able to access all the in-depth features as well as the movie itself. So it's a lot of a lot of cool stuff to look forward to. I'm excited. All right. Well, then let's go quickly over here uh, from MSN.com by way of The Hollywood Reporter and Rebecca Ford. Dylan O'Brien's injuries force Maze Runner sequel to extend production shutdown. This is an exclusive for them. It says, Fox's The Maze Runner, The Death Cure, has shut down production for the foreseeable future because its star's injuries from an accident on set are more severe than initially expected. Dylan O'Brien was injured while shooting the young adult action-adventure sequel on March 18th. 
Sources say he was in a harness on top of a moving vehicle when he was pulled off the vehicle unexpectedly and hit by another vehicle. A report from WorkSafe BC described his injuries to include, quote, concussion, facial fracture, and lacerations, end quote. Production was shut down uh, in March. It was supposed to come back online in May 9th. However, O'Brien's publicist, Jennifer Allen, says, quote, his injuries are very serious and he needs more time to recover, end quote. And, uh, yeah, um, at this point now they've literally shut down production indefinitely and we'll have to figure out a way to bring everybody back if they can and bring production back up. Um, what do you think there, Tim? Do you, do you think that, uh, is this a blessing in disguise because these movies are pretty bad or, and of course no one wishes anyone to be hurt or anything, but, um, I mean, What's the likelihood when you have to literally shut down period of everything being able to come back? Because with a young adult, that's the whole point is that the young adult, if you have to shut down production for a year and a half, everybody's going to be a hell of a lot older when they try to resume production and it may not work. So, yeah, you know, I don't know. I've never seen these movies, so I, I don't know how much it would actually affect the quality of the movie itself. I know the first one was apparently okay. Uh, and the second one went downhill in quality. But I hope they had great insurance because the expense that the studio will have to pay to delay production this long, holy crap. I mean, it's it's a lot of money. Hopefully they have some pretty damn good insurance. Right on, right on. All right, sir, what else you got for us? Already next up here, some tech news brought to us by Sony and HuffPost Tech. Sony filed a patent for video recording contact lens. That's right. You could one day shoot video with the blink of an eye. Tech giant Sony has joined the race to develop digital contact lens technology. Sony has plans for a wearable lens that can take photos and video, according to an application filed with the U.S. Patent Office. Tech Story reported, Sony filed a patent in the U.S. in May of 2013 for a smart contact lens effect only picked up by the media this past week. The device would not only take photos and videos, but store data with no need for a tether to a smartphone. The lens would feature an organic, electroluminescent display screen, according to the patent. By blinking an eye, the user would be able to operate the lens via the display. The camera would feature autofocus, automatic exposure adjustments, and an adjustable zoom. The device would also be available to record video stored and play it back. The news that Sony has been working on this technology for several years now. A trend set by Google and Samsung. In 2014, Google revealed a high-tech lens to help diabetics measure glucose levels in their tears. The same year, Samsung filed a patent in South Korea for a smart contact lens that houses a tiny camera. End all quotes there. Yeah, this kind of freaks me out a bit. Yeah, I mean, it's cool with, you know, it being a step forward in technology, but definitely a, a very possible invasion of privacy, bringing something like this into the public eye, I should say. What do you think about this uh, stuff, no Matt? No pun intended. Yeah, no pun intended. Um, well, I mean, I think any step closer towards being like Jordy LaForge that we can get, I'm behind. Um, but at the same time, I mean, 
as cool as these advances in technology are, I mean, it is a legitimate concern. Like, you know, with all the hoopla over the bathroom things that have been going on around the country, you know, um, with, with all of the invasion of privacy that we're already having to deal with from the government and from our local, state, federal, whatever. The idiots of our youth who record every damn thing. Having something that can literally turn on and be in your eye virtually undetected for the be- for the most part, that's that presents legitimate concerns. What if it but... backfires? Like, you can't buy a smokable vaporizer without the fear of one day it could overheat and explode in your hand. What if something shorts out and it fries your eye? Or I don't even know if that's a possibility at all, but... I don't know. I mean, honestly, though, I think that that's something. I mean, we're going to have to get to the point, literally, where we have, like, dampening fields and stuff that are going to prevent that kind of behavior. So, um, that would be, you know, just more, more, more Star Trek heading your way, I guess. So, I bet that's what they'll use for Hardcore Henry, too, if they decide <laughs> to make one. There you go. All right. Well, this is the last bit of news from me from avclub.com by way of William Hughes. Jim Henson's son to direct R-rated puppet movie with Jamie Foxx. It's been nearly a year since anyone last heard from the Happy Time Murders, Brian Henson's attempt to interest audiences in the, quote, puppets that fuck, end quote, genre, pioneered by directors like Peter Jackson, Charlie Kaufman, and Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Now the movie, an R-rated comedy noir set in a world where humans and puppets uneasily coexist, has pulled in its first big name, with Jamie Foxx and talks to appear as one of the leads. If he takes the role, Fox would play LAPD Detective Edwards, a clean-cut cop forced to partner with a drunken puppet private eye in order to solve a series of murders. Well, this this literally can't go wrong. Um, there's a little bit more here that goes uh, in-depth to the plot. But basically, I don't know. What do you think there, Tim? Do you think this... Uh, do you, do you really think this is going to see the light of day? I mean, if you have Swiss Army Man seeing the light of day, why not this, right? Yeah, I mean, they've been talking about this movie for years. I remember hearing about Happy Time Murders maybe five years ago. When we first started the show back in June of 2011, I'm pretty sure I talked about this. Or This is very much like Terry Gilliam's uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote you know, movie. It's always going to happen. It surfaces and makes some news, and then it goes away, and then... Six months later, it comes back again, and then it goes away. So I think it's going to be one of those things where I won't believe it until the cameras start rolling. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, well, that's my news, so bring us home on the news, sir. Via theguardian.com. Uh, this this isn't technically the news, but it's a nice little goofy thing before the actual news piece. I don't know, uh, Matt, if you're familiar with Watership Down or not, the classic 1970s animated film... That was based off a book, again, also entitled Watership Down, via theguardian.com, Bunny Furry Boils over after Channel 5 screens Watership Down on Easter Sunday. That's right, and Watership Down isn't your run-of-the-mill child's movie. No, it is definitely a adult-oriented film where you have bunny rabbits that murder each other. Very bloody murders take place outraged parents spent their holidays screaming into the void after channel 5 screened watership down a used certificate animation that features the murder of rabbits at 2:25 p.m on easter sunday 
1978 film and adaptation of Richard Adams's fantasy adventure novel tells the story of a worn facing imminent destruction. A group of rabbits sets out on a violent journey to find a new home. Their number includes a seer called Fiverr, which is voiced by Richard Breers, who has apocalyptic visions of the sun soaking the land with blood. The film also includes scenes of bloodied bunnies fighting tooth and nail over their territory. Parents angrily tweeted Channel 5 to express their disapproval. Some called for programmers at the broadcaster, which also screens the show's botched-up bodies, extreme fishing with Robinson Green, and dance moms to be sacked. As yet, no one has complained to the industry standards body, Ofcom, Channel 5 has yet to comment. The movie also features the voice of John Hurt, Nigel Hawthorne, and Roy Kinnear. I thought that was... Awfully funny. <laughs> well, I, I think that's... Why is it funny for Monty Python, but not now? I think it's totally appropriate, personally. That's just me. Yeah, I mean, I guess if your kids were, were thinking they were going to watch a down old wholesome Peter Cottontail animated film, but then they find bloodied rabbits mauling each other at 2.25 p.m. on Easter Sunday. I, I mean, I think I can understand where... The distaste feeling come is coming from, but it you know again this is a Criterion movie. You can watch it on Hulu Plus right now if you care, or just regular Hulu, or just wait for Filmstruck and watch all the special features and stuff. But yeah, indeed. All right, man. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just thought that was kind of an interesting comparison there. From Nerdist.com, the real news: John Boyega and James McAvoy are cast in New Watership Down, written by Kyle Anderson. And it says that we all know British actors are among the most versatile in the whole world of thespians. But if you'd have told us that they could go from Stormtrooper or Mutant to Furry Little Bunny Rabbit, we'd have been pretty skeptical. But it looks like that's exactly what we're going to get, thanks to a new miniseries production of Watership Down being co-produced by BBC and Netflix. Deadline is reporting the blockbuster multinational affair will feature John Boyega, James McAvoy, Nicholas Holt, Ben Kingsley, and Gemma Adderton. The big names will play different rapid characters in the four-part CG animated series, which will air in the UK on BBC One and in North America exclusively to Netflix. It's being written by Ton Bidwell who did My Mad Fat Diary, and directed by Noam Moreau, who directed the classic film 300 Rise of the Empire. Classic in very sarcastic air quotes there. So yes, if you're a big fan of Killer Rabbits or Watership Down the film or the novel, you can look forward to the upcoming BBC Netflix miniseries in probably the next year or two. Next up, for me, via TheVerge.com, Kodak will give free 35mm film to some filmmakers on Kickstarter, written by Jacob Castanercakes. <laughs> Castrencakes, Castronacakes, Jacob, K-A-S-T-R-E-N-A-K-E-S, Castronacakes. 
And it says this, it's no easy to feat to shoot a movie on film these days, but Kodak and Kickstarter are trying to change that. The two companies have partnered to offer free and discounted film to select Kickstarter campaigns. If a filmmaker's campaign qualifies for Kodak's help, Kodak will offer up to $200,000 worth of 35mm film or $1,500 worth of Super 16mm film. The exact amount is determined by how much the campaign raises, with Kodak offering a 20% match worth of film on funding for 35mm campaigns and a 15% match on Super 16mm campaigns, with a cap on both once the campaign hits $100,000. Since it's likely that neither will be enough film to complete a movie, Kodak will offer discounts on additional 35mm and Super 16mm stock. It's not clear how many campaigns will be allowed to take advantage of the program. Kickstarter tells The Verge that it doesn't have a set number, quote, but we are open to any filmmaker who wants to participate, end quote. The company set up an email, kodakfilm at kickstarter.com, that filmmakers can get in touch with before starting a campaign. Once they do, Kickstarter says, quote, Kickstarter and Kodak will evaluate the requests and projects together and select filmmakers to participate in the program, end quote. That suggests that while everyone may be eligible to apply, all may not receive Kodak's help. End all quotes there. It, well, actually, the article does go on for uh, three or four more paragraphs, but that is all I will read from. Matt, do you have any thoughts on this? Do you think this is pretty cool that uh, this is maybe Kodak's way of keeping film alive in the indie circuit since most indie films, I mean, this could also be attested to why we have so many indie films these days, is because of how cheap it is to shoot digitally and not on film stock. Is this cool to you? Is this pretty neat? I think, yeah, I think any, um, I think any attempt to keep film truly relevant is always good because as we have definitely gone on ad infinitum there is always going to be a, be a place for film and there's always going to be a place for digital and while one medium may generally overtake the other it should never be at the expense of making the other go away completely so yeah i think this is totally cool absolutely and then my last piece of news here so, Matt, I know the uh, your most anticipated movie of 2016, Mother's Day, came out this past weekend. Did you did you go out and uh, and be one of those who donated their money to the worthy cause that is Gary Marshall's latest celebrity orgy? I, I, I did. I bought ticket after ticket after ticket. I must I must be responsible for at least a hundred dollars of its eight million that it took nationwide. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly I had no idea it came out because Mother's Day is this upcoming Sunday and I figured it would come out for the weekend of Mother's Day but apparently not so there's that well what is hilarious about this is that the movie did indeed only take in 8.3 million dollars during its opening weekend but <laughs> The sad thing is that the movie didn't even make $8 million because Julia Roberts, one of the performers in the film, got paid $3 million for only four days of work. So the movie only made maybe $5 million. 
at the end of the day. ViaVariety.com, Julia Roberts made $3 million for four days on Mother's Day. Exclusive written by Ramon or Raymond Satude. S-E-T-O-O-D-E-H. Julia Roberts earned $3 million for Mother's Day for a supporting role that required her to shoot for only four days, Variety has learned. That means her rate of $750,000 a day still puts her among the top-earning actresses in Hollywood. But it's nowhere near the record for a woman. $20 million she received at the peak of her career for 2000's Aaron Brockovich, a legal story that grossed $250 million worldwide based on sheer power of its star. Uh, Mother's Day opened with a disappointing $8.3 million over this past weekend. It's a reminder that Roberts's days as a A-list star who could carry a movie on her own could be over as evidenced by other recent misfires like The Secrets in Their Eyes and Mirror Mirror, but many of her celebrity peers like George Clooney, Brad Pitt, and Harrison Ford are also struggling to carry films outside sequels based on pre-existing franchises. Mother's Day's ticket sales were hurt by terrible reviews, although it could continue to do business through next weekend when moms will be celebrating the holiday with their kids. The romantic comedy mashup directed by Gary Marshall features a sprawling cast from Jennifer Aniston to Kate Hudson that pop up in a series of vignettes. Uh, Julia Roberts plays Miranda, a famous home shopping network star who sports an Anna Winter-like wig or in a winter like wig yeah you know like this article says i think she's not the big star as she once was i mean uh, the last few movies she's been in flopped where she was the star or actually got paid star money so i don't know i mean this kind of uh, brings up a couple questions matt do you think this marks the death of star power when it comes to movies like this or stars like this? And does it belong to the likes of Robert Downey Jr. in a Marvel movie? Or does this mean something else? No, I I think at the end of the day, what it means is, is that um, we are, we are starting to see where, you're literally you're you're literally seeing a generational gap occur, and the movies like uh, the Secret in Her Eyes and all that kind of stuff, right? These are movies that are built on the star power of a generation from twenty years ago. These are not the people who are seeing movies anymore of that caliber. So, without some kind of bridge to bring them into the fore, so that young people will see them, it's kind of like it's the reason why. I was, without my wonderful movie education, I would have never known who Rex Harrison was or David Niven or, you know, Claudia Colbert. Any you know, all those previous generations, Lauren Bacall, of moviegoers. Because in my time of growing up, right, we had, uh, you know, you had people like Meg Ryan, you had people uh, like uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, right? So all of these... Act, actors and actresses are people who were relevant 20 years ago but have not had any way to bridge over. So I think the smart thing, it's not that she's not a good star. It doesn't mean that she doesn't know how to act anymore. It's just you need to, with like someone like Robert Downey Jr., he was lucky to get Iron Man to bridge him because Homeboy is getting on to 50 years old and yet he's still relevant. But even that Judge movie that he was in flopped, 
from a couple years ago. Again, that's right. But he was the only... But again, it's telling a story that most people of that age... I mean, think about it. Outside, think about your friends, right? Think about, you know, the kinds of people in our age group. And think even 10, 12 years ago. We are outliers. That's why we do this show. Because we care passionately about movies. And we really care about stars of all eras and stuff. But would your friends have seen a movie like The Judge? No. Because the story doesn't interest them at all. It's a character study in a drama. Um, I think that that's what's going to happen... For them, in 20 or 30 years, you're going to have, like, Chris Pratt's, and you're going to have the Anna Ferris's of the world, and uh, whoever else is budding now and turning in 20, 25 years, they're going to do a serious drama, or they're going to do something, and then people are also, again, not really going to go see it, because the, the, the kids today will be all grown up and into that kind of thing, but their kids could give a shit, you know, couldn't give a shit, so... But I, I will say that I think it's time for these ensemble cast movies to stop. Like, <laughs> bad. They, these need to go away. They need to go away. I swear to God, I'm waiting for Flag Day at this point. I mean, right? Sylvester Stallone in A Lonely Carpenter. Sylvester Stallone falls in love with the flower shopkeeper Marissa Tomei. Flag Day. All right. <laughs> no, I don't want to cut you off again, did I? Right, no, we're good. So... We're, we're, okay, we're past it. the point of tolerance i think or at least our listeners are i'm sure all right well then let's go ahead and move on to did it age well prince in his first motion picture before he created the music he lived every bit of it This time on Did It Age Well, we are going to be covering Purple Rain, the 1984 rock musical drama directed by Albert Magnoli and starred Prince, Apollonia Cotero, Morris Day, Olga Carlatos, and Clarence Williams III. This is a semi-quasi-biographical role for Prince, who plays the kid, and that's all he's ever known as, and he's a frontman for a much more popular group, uh, Morris Day's group. More stay in the time, and um, he's he still is able to you know definitely rock the house and everything, but he is too driven by what he thinks is right in terms of music that he shuts out any other um, any other kind of help uh, and feels like he's got to do it all on his own, and it causes strife and it's causing problems with 
the management at the club he performs at and everything. And then it's compounded by the entrance of this young girl, Apollonia, who is an up-and-coming singer who decides to let the kid help her start a career, more or less. Um, and so now we, you know, shenanigans ensue, and will the kid overcome his own struggles? Will he succeed in the music business? Blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> this movie, I, I I have no idea where to come on it, where, where to come down on it, <laughs> where to come on it, that's hilarious, where to come down on it, because as a concert film, holy crap, aces all the way, 100% has aged well, would definitely recommend anybody to watch the concert scenes all the time, any day of the week, twice on Sundays, this, this is why Prince was uh, the artist that he was, and Yet, then the film stops being a concert film and then goes into an actual plot, right? That has some of the worst writing and horrid acting that I have ever seen. And it does not age well at all, okay? I mean, at all. It's terrible. Absolutely terrible. Um, and uh, so I, I literally, I don't know where to come down on this because... At, as as the on the whole it tries to be a drama right but it's also serves as a vehicle to showcase prince as a concert singer and so it just does that really 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 well um another thing that the movie does really well is its score now you're thinking wait a minute you just said it was a rock drama it is however there is a score and so you have certain scenes where morris is talking with his lackey and stuff and they kind of in a very shoddy way recreate the who's on first routine and yet there's also lots of stuff that goes on in the background when they're talking and when other people are doing things and stuff. And there's lots of jazz scores, lots of uh, really, really good bongo movements and stuff like that. And so the, and so the incorporation of that into the movie is really, really good. But uh, that doesn't cover for the terrible, terrible acting and stuff. So. Good Lord. Um, I guess since there are more concert footage aspects to the film than there are regular aspect footage to the film, I'll give it a yes overall for having aged well. But really, it's just the, it's just the concert stuff that's good. Other than that, it, it's really terrible. So that's, that, that, that's where we are. What do you got there, Tim? I don't know. I'm not sure if this will be the case when the episode is released or not later this week. But all around L.A., they have been showing this movie at movie theaters. Uh, like, I'm talking about even at Cinemarks, AMCs, multiple $5, $6 showings, six times a day. You know, at all these different chain theaters. Not just at local indie film houses or anything like that, but actual chain movie theaters in I was lucky to go to a local Cinemark and see it, and the movie had a particular effect on me watching it on the big screen and with theater surround sound than it would have, I think, watching it at home on my big screen TV at home. Because I think in the movie, I had no choice but to 
accept the cheesiness and the bad acting, but focus more on the storytelling. Because you cannot deny that the movie obviously aged. I mean, I'll leave it up to you if you think it aged for the better or for the worse right now. But it has obviously aged. But you cannot say that it aged badly without mentioning the likable or the even the laughable cheesiness and some of the dramatic layering, which it does have. And you watch this movie where the concert performances are great, and you watch it and you kind of tear up a bit because I've always wanted to see a Prince concert. And I like I, I feel more so than I, I missed out on something after watching this movie. So you're, you're in, uh, completely enveloped in the concert performance. Whenever it's the dramatic and the you know drama and the actual story stuff, it shot really well. The setting was good. The actual camera work and the cinematography was good it's just the story and the acting but as the movie goes on you get used to i think some of the acting and some of the some of the side characters with that are you know that come out more like uh, the two girls in prince's band they want him to perform a song that they wrote ultimately that becomes purple rain that acting is good, you know, from that girl, that for his one side girl is good. And from then on, the movie is just a little bit better in the acting department. But you're sitting in a movie theater and watching it, and it's a good experience, and, you, if, and you're able to accept everything, that's when I think you kind of fall into the movie and really find enjoyment in it. It's obvious why this movie was popular at the time, because if Prince can be as mesmerizing and have his sexual effect on you now, I couldn't imagine how orgasmic it was at the movie theater in 1984 watching this, especially for the diehard fans out there who did get to see this. Diana, did you see this in, uh, in, in 1984? Did anybody else out there that we talked to on a regular basis see this movie in 1984 at the movie theater? Rebel Soak Jim, did you? I would love to know what you thought, because to my, in my opinion, I kind of think for people in the 80s, this was their Hard Day's Night, you know? But the difference between Purple Rain and Hard Day's Night is that Hard Day's Night holds up now, for the most part. It's still as funny, it's still as catchy and entertaining as it was in the 60s. Minus Beatlemania. But Purple Rain is charming, and like I said, if you give the movie a shot, if you fall into its clutches, if you let it embrace you, you can start peeling the layers back and understand more about the deeply troubled kid character, you know, Prince's character is called the kid, and you start kind of understanding what he's going to, everything from his commitment issues due to his father, uh, and how his father is abusive to his mother. And I'm assuming that most of you guys out there have seen it because there's a moment where uh, the kid discovers his father's old music and he realizes that his father was a musician. He hasn't known this in, you know, 20, 25, 30 years of his life, however old Prince is supposed to be in this movie. And he comes across his sheet music and finds out that his father was a musician just like him and that if the kid keeps doing the things he's doing, he's going to end up being like his father. He knows that he's following the same path. And he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to close himself off from people. He wants to fall in love and be in, in love with the woman. And, you know, he doesn't want to be abusive. And so there's more layers to it as the movie goes on. But you really have to kind of work, out, work at peeling it back. Because 
in between the meat and the good performances, you do have shoddy acting. You do have shoddy characters. You do have very uncomfortable moments where you feel like Prince is undressing everybody who he is looking at through his round aviator 80s, 70s, whatever glasses that he is wearing. And then on top of that, you have these really interesting sex montages where every single one of your fantasies that you've had growing up, guys, is being played. Prince is playing them out in this movie. (laughs) And you're watching it and you're like, God damn, this shit is fucking hot. And then five seconds later, you you start to like process what's happening on screen. Then you realize this shit is so random and it, it, it's kind of more uncomfortable than it is turning me on because of how random and weird it is. Like, there's a part in the movie where he goes to... Uh, where he's having problems with his girlfriend. They never really ever break up, even after he smacks her a couple times. And he goes back to the place where they both... where they first kind of fell in love or felt something or whatever. And he's sitting there and he dramatically takes off his glasses and he's staring at, a, at what looks like a retention pond, actually. And he starts having these flashbacks of where they've boned throughout the time that they've been together. And apparently they've been together for more than two days because you get the sense that they've only known each other for two days. But I guess it's been weeks or months. But it goes through like this montage and you see her topless and you know on on top of him who he is topless and naked as well writing him and then you're seeing it from the back and you're like oh my god she looks great you know this is my wildest dreams are playing out right here and then you start looking around and realize is it wait is he laying in hay is she writing him on on a barrel of hay no wait no they're in a fucking barn why are they in a barn why, the, the movie has never set up anything uh, on a farm, you know, but no, she's writing him on, on hay in a fucking barn, and it's and it's crazy, and it's bizarre, and it kind of weirds you out a little bit, because you can't tell if he's envisioning this, or if he's looking back on this fondly, because when Prince is acting, he has a very, he has the same stoic look on his face, and it's very interesting, and I'm rambling on at this point. So, did this movie age well? I'm with Matt. I am split, but I am definitely going to have to go with yes. It aged well. It is Purple Rain. It is legendary because of Prince and because of the content. Just don't expect Academy Award winning material. You know, don't expect that. Then you are good. Yes, I do think Purple Rain aged well. Awesome. All right. Well, that is going to conclude Did It Age Well? And bring us to our next, uh, well, and talk about our next week's bonus segment, which will be Was It Worthy? I'm springing this one on Tim even as we speak. So this ought to be interesting. We're going to go take a look in the opposite direction in terms of instead of looking at the best, let's look at the worst. And so... There was a movie that I saw when I was young that confused the living piss out of me on HBO, and it's called Leonard Part 6, mainly because I didn't understand where the other five movies were. And that's just the first of many, many problems this movie has. I was, however, a huge Bill Cosby fan at the time. At the time? Why not now? Well, I think, um, yeah, I, I can still, I think in terms of, 
like the things that he wanted to do socially and stuff and how he thought, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and stuff. I like those ideas that he espoused, but all this rape shit, that's not cool. So, um, that, that's kind of where I land on that. Um, but it turns out that back in 1987, the golden raspberry awards, perhaps you might've heard of them as the Razzies honored Leonard part six with the worst picture award of the year so we are going to take a look back at leonard part six look at see what it was up against in terms of its other nominations and determine whether or not we agree whether or not that leonard part six was the worst picture of 1987 so that's what we're doing there that's was it worthy and now i believe it's time for the movies is it not sir movie it up all right folks here we go it's the movies This week's films are Green Room, High Rise, and The Lady in the Van. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? Ooh, uh, how about The Lady in the Van? Okay, Lady in the Van is basically a retelling of the true story of um, Alan Bennett's strained uh, friendship with a young lady, but well, not a young lady, but a woman by the name of Miss Mary Shepard, who was a homeless woman who ended up staying in a van on his property for 15 years. Um, and so, yeah. Um, and it's kind of their shenanigans as, as he learns more about her and what makes her the way that she is, as well as trying to understand why he would do what he is doing. And yet, at the same time, also coming together to form kind of an unlikely friendship and bond over that time. Um, so, Miss Mary Shepard is definitely a weird chick, played by Maggie Smith, and I guess I should do this part here. 2015 British comedy drama film directed by Nicholas Heitner, and it is written by Alan Bennett and stars Maggie Smith and Alex Jennings. This is one of those feel-good movies that's designed to put you in mind of someone, uh, you know, and... and get you to look past your own prejudices and try to figure out just exactly what makes a human tick and, and realize the potential that is human and, and how the human being and, and then of course look back and say, holy crap, see how someone can be destroyed by events in their life. But what's interesting is that actually Maggie Smith played uh, Mary Shepard twice. Uh, she did one in a stage production and she also did it in a radio production. So this is actually the third time that she has been doing this role. Maggie Smith, I think, is just a fantastic actress overall. And I thought that Alex Jennings did a good job as well playing Alan Bennett. I think the only problem for me with this movie um, is that, as I have said in the last couple of weeks, this one, uh, it just kind of, for me, it feels a little rote. Um, and it's just a simple by the numbers comedy drama and because of the things that it's trying to get to and help you, you know, come to terms with and understand that doesn't mean it's not good. It just, I think without really bringing anything new to the table in this genre, um, it keeps it from being excellent. So long and short of it is if you like this kind of movie, you will really like this kind of movie. 
great acting, good performances, decent cinematography. I didn't really think there was anything um, in terms of the way it was shot that really screamed awesome, but not subpar either. Just again, everything right on the numbers. So I'm going to give this one a four out of five. Really liked it. Just doesn't bring anything new to the table. What do you got there, Tim? Yeah, there's really only so much you can do with this type of formula. I think once a year we get one of these uh, these British, I don't want to say fluff piece because that is usually a derogatory term for a movie, I guess. But it's definitely one of those lighthearted movies with a lot of depth in it, but they don't want you to like go home sobbing. So it has a very upbeat, lighthearted, happy tone to it. The film is written by, well, it's written and it's based on the stage play, and it's about Alan Bennett, who was a part of the great British comedy troupe called Beyond the Fringe. And for those who are familiar with Beyond the Fringe, it used to star Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, and Jonathan Miller. I think we all know who Peter Cook and Dudley Moore are as well. Alan Bennett was one of the fringies. And so, you know, he has this wit to him. He has this particular voice to him. And I think, I honestly think they could not have picked a better actor in Alex Jennings to play Alan Bennett. Because his voice, I think, really came out through him. And it just added this nice contrast to Maggie Smith's Miss Shepard. Because you needed somebody that equaled the spunkiness that Maggie Smith had. And Alex Jennings could equal that, not necessarily in his physicality, but in his language especially. And in speaking of spunkiness, I've never seen Maggie Smith in a more high-energy role. I mean, she's in her 80s now, and man, this woman is running across, <laughs> it's like running down streets, jumping up and down, bending over, and she's not doing acrobatic maneuvers or anything like that, but she's moving around a lot, and she, I mean, she has the most energy out of everybody, and it is her energy versus Alan Bennett's wit in his writing, and it's just a very nice mixture. They make a great couple. And in a way, the movie isn't as contrived, nor is it as convoluted. Because in normal movies kind of like this, where you have a play on two different type of characteristics, for example, like Philomena. Philomena is actually a very fresh movie. But characteristically, you've seen that before. Lady in the Van, it, play was, it plays with that relationship the older and the younger relationship more so because you do have two real people um you have again the younger guy who is the witty he is the more intelligent by the book writer and then you have the older woman who is kind of a not necessarily a schizophrenic but she is kind of like the batty old woman who has more depth to her and even though she is homeless she is more human in a way and What's great is that the movie doesn't make a point, or these characters don't make it a point to help each other out, but they inadvertently help each other out. And in doing so, the movie focuses more on characters separately and the interactions that they have with one another, which is absolutely delightful and makes the movie that much more entertaining. And on top of that, you have all the other side characters played by Francis de la Tour, who is one of the neighbors which is great, and you have Roger Allman, who's the other 
uh, who's one of the other neighbors, as well as Jim Broadbent, who plays the retired cop who is kind of uh, committing fraud and trying to just weasel money out of her every every few months or so. So it's a it's a nice cast and it's it's excellently paced and it has a nice a uh, lighthearted feel to it, but it's actually funny, which is nice. So I too give. Lady in the Van, four stars, even though it is some of the same. So, four out of five. All right, sir, where do you want to go from there? How about High Rise? Okay. Terry Gilliam's High Rise. Oh, yeah, no shit, right? Uh, Let's see here. High Rise, 2015 British thriller directed by Ben Wheatley, starring Tom Hiddleston, Jeremy Irons, Sienna Miller, Luke Evans, and Elizabeth Moss. Uh, Let's see here. Okay, so... Let's imagine that Brazil met Snowpiercer. And I think you've pretty much got this movie. It just takes place in a high-rise instead of a train. Is that a pretty fair encapsulation of this film, sir? Uh, yeah, I I would say... Or maybe 12 Monkeys. 12 Monkeys. More more amateur and made cheaper. Yeah. Um, Alright, so basically we have... Uh, the movie opening up with Dr. Robert Lang, uh, who is played by Tom Hiddleston, and he is in this like post-apocalyptic ravaged apartment building, and he basically starts off by killing a dog and eating it. And then we rewind to find out what led up to this thing. And basically the apartment, uh, the, the high rise is this uh, all-inclusive apartment building where lower class people live in the bottom, middle class people live on the middle floors, upper class people live on the higher floors. It's got its own grocery store, it's got pools, it's got its own entertainment. So basically you kind of have like this, you know, one-stop shop for living, as it were. And in a very 12 Monkeys Shining-esque kind of way, everybody just decides to go stir-crazy and they play all this stuff out, and then it becomes a kind of a clusterfuck of epic proportions within the city. And God help you if you're one of the people who actually don't stay there 24-7. Um, so, this movie is really, really, really weird. And I don't know how else to describe it. The acting... It's not that the acting is bad. It it is not that the acting is bad. Pardon me here, I'm trying to mute my mic as I cough all over the place. It's that the characters are really... The characterizations themselves are really weird. I'm not sure what Ben Wheatley was trying to achieve in translating this story and the characterizations onto the screen. And I think that's the biggest problem with this movie. As a result, you have a story that as it devolves into mindlessness, instead of it being thrilling or engrossing, you're just kind of like, huh, well, that's weird. And you're left with more questions than answers, and not necessarily in a thought-provoking way. Um, it's not like the worst movie in the world. It's just it's really, really weird, and it doesn't seem to find its footing. And again, it's because you've got a lot of talent here, but the characters are just all over the damn map. And 
Um, I don't know. Maybe the novelization was better. This movie is based on a novel by the same name from 1975. So maybe that's worth checking out. I don't know. I'm going to go ahead and give this one a 2.5 out of 5. Uh, it's okay. It's not, I mean, it's definitely not the worst thing I've ever seen, but there's just really no way to say that I liked it truly either. So 2.5 out of 5. Yeah, this is another frustrating one for me because the first 30 minutes of this movie, I was really into it. I loved the energy. I loved the bizarreness of it. It was something different that I loved. And very much like what Matt was saying, it is very Terry Gilliam-esque where you have big ideas but on a smaller scale. Um, and, you know, going into the movie, I had an idea that it wasn't. It didn't have a big budget. It's based off an off-kilter book that a lot of people don't really read nowadays, even though J.G. Ballard is still pretty well-known in fiction. And also, the movie doesn't really require a large budget either. However, one can only wonder what more director Ben Wheatley could have achieved if he did have a little bit more money. Because the whole the entire movie basically erupts into class warfare as the story progresses. And it's definitely a nice allegory of of the times maybe and i think that's maybe another reason why they shot it it, the particular way like at first look the movie looks like it's based in the 70s but then again they have a lot of the modern stuff that we have nowadays so it's doing one of those weird interesting kind of mix of different time periods but i kind of wondered as while reading it is if the reason why they kept the 70s look not, not again not knowing if Uh, It's because of the book or not, or if the book makes mention of it or not. Uh, I don't know if maybe they kept the 70s look to it because it is a maybe a social commentary on the 70s or on the things that were going on at the time. I don't know. Um, If you've read High Rise, do let me know. Or if you are familiar with any of J.G. Ballard's other work, do let us know. Uh, Because that would be interesting if we're just or if I'm just totally getting this completely fucking wrong or not. (laughs) But you're watching the movie and you just start wondering these things. Once the initial high of the movie being high energy, different, wears off, you're just kind of left with a movie that doesn't know where to place itself. The good thing about Brazil is that Brazil was a dystopian film that had a decent budget, but Terry Gilliam never ran out of ideas. Each scene, there was something different. There was interesting cuts. There was interesting camera placement. There were interesting characters. There were interesting story elements. The movie kept progressing in a very entertaining way. High Rise, once it hits the 30-minute mark, you've already met most of the characters. All the surprises have been used up during the first half of the film, so you're kind of left with the people that you've already become accustomed to. And therefore, there's nothing more interesting about these people because the story is stagnant. The character, you know, and I should—I guess I shouldn't say that the story is stagnant, but you're just left with the idea. And I think if he had a little bit more money, there could have been more things to look at. But that goes without saying that the acting is very good. I applaud... Tom Hiddleston for taking on very interesting and unique roles in uh, in movies like this. 
I am a fan of Ben Wheatley's previous films. Well, mainly one of them that he made. I know, Matt, you didn't care for it. But it's the film Sightseers about the, the couple that meet up and they go on a killing spree during a vacation or something like that. And I did know that he did produce, executive produce, The Duke of Burgundy, which is the film that we reviewed some months ago. So he is a very talented guy. It's just he needed something more interesting throughout the movie to really keep your attention and to keep you invested into what's all going on. Because in the first four minutes of the movie or three minutes of the movie, you already know what the movie is going to lead to. Like, you already know the outcome. So you need something else to really keep you invested into what all is going on. And so you're just not constantly expecting the outcome to happen. I still liked it. I mean, I kept wondering when it was going to be over. Uh, if I had to judge the movie for, by the first 30 minutes, I would have given it four and a half. Just I started taking half stars off as the time went on. I do, however, land at three out of five stars. I like it. It just got a little too confusing as it went on. But I do recommend it for those that are into the avant-garde dystopian class warfare films. All right, very good. Well, then that leaves us with Green Room, 2015 American horror film written and directed by uh, Jeremy Solnier. Uh, film stars Anton Yelchin, uh, uh, Imogen Poots, Alice Shockwatt, and Patrick Stewart. Uh, let's see here. The, the, okay, so basically you've got some kids who go to, uh, who are on a radio show and uh, they're a band. They're trying to promote said band. They're actually in Oregon, which is kind of cool, uh, you know, seaside and stuff and Portland, which was kind of neat to see places that I've lived and been to. And uh, they end up doing a show at uh, what they find out to be a neo-Nazi <laughs> um, skinhead bar. And um, after performing their set, they go to the green room and basically, uh, and of course a green room is where you are prepped, you know, it's where you go to relax or you're off stage and you can be ready to go on stage. And... Uh, all hell breaks loose. Holy God, all hell breaks loose. And this poor band, all they're trying to do is they just want to go home. And there's no way that they're going to get to go home. Not without a fight. Um, And shenanigans ensue, etc., etc., etc. For me, I kind of felt like this film was very reminiscent of From Dusk Till Dawn. And while... Uh, and, and I think this movie was also very fun... Um, and scary, I think, but whereas From Dust Till Dawn was definitely more about the fun factor and the spookiness factor, this one is uh, has its fun moments, but was definitely trying to ramp up on the terror, like legit terror. And, I mean, there is definitely some seriously nasty shit. One boy gets his uh, arm caught in a fucking door and his hand gets off. Oh, God, it's like, yeah, um, people getting shot in the head all over the place, killed by dogs. I mean, you name it. If it's a bad thing that's going to happen and cause you bodily harm, grievous injury, and or death, it's probably in this film. Um, that being said, though, as much as I enjoyed the gruesome aspects of the horror film, I just kind of felt like 
they there wasn't a natural progression to everything that was going on. I felt like it just kind of was pulling you by the hand just to get these people out of the bar. Um, and while I did appreciate some of the twists and turns that you find in there, especially like with underground bunkers and et cetera, et cetera, um, I just really felt like they were trying too hard to make the story cohesive. I thought the acting was very decent and um, I really enjoyed the cinematography and definitely the gruesome effects and stuff like that. But uh, with a, with, with them again, feeling like they're just trying too hard and yanking you by the hand just to get you through the plot um, that hurt it a lot. So I'm going to come away on this one with three out of five. It is a decent movie. I absolutely liked it. Um, but that's not to say that's not, not without its flaws and will definitely make you feel like you're watching something else. So there you go. Bring us home, Tim. So this movie is directed by Jeremy Saulnier, and he directed a little movie called Blue Ruin that we watched about a year, year and a half ago that I do believe we both really liked. It's a little indie film where a guy returns to his childhood home and he, to carry out an act of vengeance. And what was cool about that movie is that the movie was very unexpected. You didn't really know what was going to happen or exactly what was going on. And so that, that kind of added to the overall experience. With Green Room, there were a couple problems with this movie. Uh, first off, if you've seen any of the trailers for the film, they do a good job at not really telling you what is going on. And I am, I mean, like what Matt did, I'm not going to tell you exactly what is going on. Um, because it's a good movie, and you deserve to be as naive as possible going into it. Because if you know a little bit of it, then the movie will just become another run-of-the-mill thriller where you know what will lead up to the thing that you know is going to happen. Because the movie really relies on you not knowing, I should say. It's one of those. It relies on you not knowing anything that's going to happen. But one of the things that really kind of gets to me is not only is the movie hailed as being super original, absolutely horrifying and scary, uh, the freshest movie you'll see in years, but it's also saying that it's one of Jean-Luc Picard's best films ever made. And as I'm watching it, I just had that quote from that review stuck in my head, and I didn't go off look, reading reviews or anything like that. It's in the trailer for the movie or one of the trailers for the movie. And I'm watching it, and it's like, you know, Jean-Luc Picard is a great actor. He's great. I love him. But is this one of the most sinister roles I've ever seen? Not in the least. Does he do a good job at it? For the most part. But I also wonder why a British man owns a club <laughs> in the middle of the Oregon forest. I don't know, but it spawned more questions than it did thrills from me. So things like that kind of bothered me. I just couldn't help referring back to those reviews in my mind of how horrifying and fresh and entertaining 
something new that you've never seen that this movie is. But really, it's it's not. It's just a good film. Whatever happened to movies just being good movies? I mean, it kind of seems like all the British films that what we've been talking about, like with Lady in the Van and Philomena, you know, it, it seems like they've reaped all the benefits or all the accolades of them just being, oh, they're just good movies. You know, we'll give it great reviews because it's just a good movie. There's nothing bad to say about it. Well, what happened to these thrillers? They're just good. They don't have to be the best movie you've seen in years. I think there's other ways to describe it. Because overall, I think you're just going to disappoint. I guess I can go both ways. I think this would be actually a pretty interesting uh, discussion at some point. Because then I've, I've heard movies, and I know people that have gone and seen the movie, and said that it was amazing. It was the best thing that they've ever ever seen. And so I guess it goes both ways. I don't know. But then I think the biggest complaint that I have with this film is the story structure. Is that you have a movie that's solely based in a green room, but eventually they have to get out. And eventually, once they hit one obstacle, they're going to overcome that obstacle, then they're going to hit another obstacle. And it's going to be a domino effect from there. We all know this, just because of what type of movie it is. But it seems like that the director, Jeremy Saulnier, painted himself into a corner. And the way he tries to get himself and the movie out of that corner, I felt was very convoluted in a, in a very straightforward way. Once you have the initial, oh shit, all this fucking crap is going on, there's really not much more that comes after that, that equals that. So once you have the initial, oh my god, what the fuck is going on, you're kind of left with convoluted storytelling. And really, that is my biggest complaint. Is the movie still entertaining? Is it still good? Yes, it is. It is better than your average run-of-the-mill thriller. It has fine performances, fine storytelling, and ultimately, I don't think you are going to be let down by it. So I give this uh, movie 3.5 out of 5. It might be just a scotch more than it deserves, but overall, it was a good time at the movies, and I do recommend it despite its pitfalls. So again, 3.5 out of 5. Very good. All right. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the movie segment. Movies for next week are going to be Captain America, Civil War, The Family Fang, and Remember... And so I think without further ado, that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the mu- music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our movie part. <laughs> that was terrible. Uh, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can even follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. And, of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Maggie Smith, I get to say this. The performances you have in your head are always much better than the performances on stage. I definitely agree with that. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>